Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Monday night, we meet the young Toronto entrepreneur who's finding success mixing it up in the growing non-alcoholic drink business and find out how she and her brother took something called Groovy from Kitchen Table Concept to products in 35 stores across North America. With Valentine's Day fast approaching, we have the perfect gift idea, not for the love in your life, but for somebody quite different. How North American zoos are letting you name a roach after an ex, and it's all for a good cause. We tackle misconceptions about millennials after the Senate, the oldest of Canadian institutions, is offering a webinar on how to work with the often maligned generation. But first, how did a company made up of just two people take in big commissions on contracts for that ArriveCan app, only to subcontract the work to much larger firms? The Prime Minister called it highly illogical today and asked a top bureaucrat in the country to look into it. And it's not the first contracting scandal this government finds itself in this month. Justin Trudeau, the Liberal cabinet, or most of it, are meeting in Hamilton over the next few days ahead of the resumption of Parliament next week. And um, it's a three-day strategy session, but uh, he found himself answering some uncomfortable questions today once again about the ArriveCan app. Uh, He's asked Canada's top public servant to look into the procurement process for the development of that app. You'll know that the, uh, what did it end up costing? $54 million. Well, the Globe and Mail reported today that the government paid $44 million over two years. $44 million over two years. This is for an app, by the way. I mean, it was complicated, but still. I mean, all the things that came in after it were complicated to keep it up to date, but still $44 million over two years or 54, $44 million of that went to a two-person firm in Ottawa. Two-person firm which then subcontracted to six other companies to actually do the work. So these contracts went to a two-person firm. They took the commissions and then subcontracted it out to other companies to do the actual work. At a news conference today in Toronto, Trudeau said he'd asked, again, the clerk of the Privy Council to look at the government's procurement practices to make sure that they, we, are getting good value for money. Obviously, this is uh, a practice that seems highly uh, illogical and uh, inefficient, and uh, I have made sure that the uh, Clerk of the Privy Council is looking into procurement practices to make sure uh, that we're getting value for money and that we're doing things in a smart and logical way. During the pandemic, speed was at an essence, helping people quickly was at an essence, uh, but there are principles that we should make sure uh, are, uh, are sound moving forward. Highly illogical, he says. Highly illogical. Well, yeah. Why would the public service not just hire the subcontracted firms directly or do the work in-house even? But if you're going to hire them to do it, why not just hire them yourselves? Why are you paying some middle company to do it for you? And it comes in the same month that the prime minister had to respond to reports about the astronomical growth of outsourcing of contracts to multinational consulting firm McKinsey & Company. At that time, he'd asked two of his ministers to look into that issue. So all kinds of contract stuff going on. Joining me now with more on this is Laurie Williams, a political scientist at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Thanks for your time. And first time we've spoken in 2023. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Ben. Thanks. So what do you, I know you've watched government for a long time. I have. I mean, this one is, this whole thing with the ArriveCan app, first of all, it's, it's always been a head scratcher. But this latest one. With, the number, with just a sheer amount of contracts going to such a small firm to essentially act to farm these contracts, this workout to other people, seems, I mean, highly illogical to quote the Prime Minister. 
Right. So, I mean, he's acknowledging there's a problem and saying he's going to fix it. He's also saying that it occurred during COVID and things could not be quite as carefully planned and focused and targeted during that time. But the numbers here are pretty stunning. You know, billing rates of 1,500 per day per worker, um, commissions charged by GC strategies of 15 to 30 percent. And so the natural question associated with this is why can't this be done more cost efficiently or effectively by the government itself? Um, And, you know, it's there are other issues that have been associated with it, as you implied, which is uh, you may recall last year they the app sent a message to, I think, 10,000 fully vaccinated travelers that they needed to quarantine. Uh, and once, well, I don't know exactly when it was discovered, but they weren't notified that it was a mistake until 10 days in. Now, there have been privacy concerns raised yeah. by this, another one being being uh, investigated since last July. So certainly a lot of questions around the uh, arrive can happen and whether uh, it's delivering value for money. It feels a bit like, I mean, and the federal government is certainly not alone when it comes to having trouble with, with IT, right? But it feels like mm. this one has become to has come to encompass just about the worst examples of, and we won't talk about the Phoenix pay system, but it's come to encompass some of the worst examples of something that should have been relatively simple, sort of turning into this beast of a contract. And this is just the latest example of it. Right. And, and so some of the, you know, since October, people have been able to use it voluntarily and it might have speeded up their their uh, passage through customs. Um, but only about 13 percent of travelers, according to, to some of these reports that we're reading, only about 13 percent of Canadians or, or travelers rather are using it. So, uh, you know, I think I think there's serious questions to be raised about whether this is is value for money. And, and it does seem to be a mind boggling amount of money, whether you look at the total, whether you look at the the two-year expenditure, whether you look at the the the, uh, the daily charge or the commissions, um, you know, serious questions are being raised about this, and and makes the government very vulnerable to challenges being brought by those who want to to make sure that taxpayer dollars are being spent wisely. Yeah, and that brings me to the McKinsey one as well, because of course that was already on the front burner before this happened. Um, now, you know, if, if you've ever sort of covered government, and I have, you know, you know that contracts and subcontractors and consultants are a part of daily life in in government, uh, and one can assume that during the you know the, the height of the pandemic that there was a lot of urgency to get things done, and maybe a little bit less diligence when it came to the contract contractual side of things. But it feels like this government has a bit of an issue on its hand when it comes to are we getting value for money with all this money going out the door? Yeah, when you look at the list, you know, just listing the problems with the Arrive Can app, uh, looking at uh, uh, you know some of the the other uh, issues that have come up, the the fact that um, you know just uh, last month there were revelations about, about public services and. Procurement Canada awarding a contract for the RCMP um, to build and, and maintain a radio frequency system for the RCMP, right. and that they're associated with China. And so, I, you know, a series of questions that I think are, are uh, going to accumulate to pre- present quite a challenge for the government. And yet, you know, I, I mean, I've been involved in in, in requests for, for proposals before and, and, you know, tendering contracts and so on. It's not that tough. Like, it's not that tough. You sort of, it takes time. You got to go through it. You got to get your candidates in and figure out how to do it right. But it's not, um, I mean, there's, there's a whole procurement system in place, right, that's supposed to guard against this stuff. 
Well, and part of the problem, of course, as you mentioned, is that some of this occurred during COVID when things were not functioning op- optimally and the need was to get things out the door rather than, than take the kind of care that normally would be associated with this sort of thing. But again, um, it's it's a series of, of serious questions being raised, certainly lots for the opposition to to challenge the government with, and the uh, Prime Minister's strategy seems to be that he's going to sort of hand it off to ministers or public servants to try to to avoid it happening again. But I I certainly think in the next election campaign, this is going to be a a point of vulnerability for this government. Yeah, we're looking into it. Before we move off and talk about Alberta, let's talk about what did you make of this Prime Minister's greatest Prime Minister's poll? It was a bit of a, it felt like a bit of an outlier, but wow, 40% of people are like, you know, I don't know, I don't know. No, no, or maybe don't care. I I think a lot of folks aren't particularly impressed with politicians these days. And part of it's just the fact the news tends to focus on things that are going wrong. But, you know, politics is is not, uh, you know, a, a very sort of uplifting thing to be chatting about these days. There's a lot of animosity and anger and polarization, well, beyond polarization, violence, uh, threats and so forth um, going on. And I think I think there are a lot of folks that are that are pretty disenchanted with it. Yeah, that 40% doesn't surprise you then, I imagine. <laughs> and, and the other one being quite sort of, well, you know, fairly separated between leaders that, from the last 50 years, you know, sort of mm-hmm. ones you may have known. Yeah. And, and you think about it, I mean, really, we've had, you know, three prime ministers in in uh, you know, the last 20 years or so. You know, those be the three that, that are top of mind. I'm, I'm actually a bit surprised that Stephen Harper ranked as high as he did because you know, when a, a recent politician usually brings along memories of the things that people disliked just before they left or while they're in office in the case of Justin Trudeau. If there was a full investigation, you could have conversations. You could actually be interviewing and speaking to to members of uh, of either the prosecutor's office, the premier's office. I would, I would imagine you should talk to all of them. That's Raki Pancholi. She's an NDP member Uh, a member of the NDP in Alberta, she's talking about a very quickly done investigation that was launched uh, over the weekend by the Premier, Daniel Smith, uh, into allegations in a report by the CPC that um, there had been emails sent from someone in Danielle Smith's office to prosecutors involved in the Coots case. That was the Coots case on the U.S. border, the blockade back when, um, questioning you know, exactly their approach, questioning the need for charges. Anyway, they've looked into this apparently very quickly, and have found no evidence that any of these emails exist, as far as they can tell. Uh, Lori Williams is with us. She's a political scientist at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Uh, so this was done pretty quickly. Pretty quickly, Lori. Uh, what do you make of what do you make of the breadth of, and the conclusions of of all of this? Well, there are a lot of questions about the breadth. Um, we hear that you know, email an email sort of audit was done by uh, civil servants, and so the the calls were for an independent inquiry and. The government is claiming that the independence was provided by the independent civil service. We we don't know what emails were reviewed, just that there was a large number, included, including deleted emails. But we don't know if there were, they only looked at emails that were uh, sent on a government server, or whether their personal emails were included in this. We don't know the scope of it. And so both the questions of that, that breadth, depth and and independence i think still remain i, I mean these are serious questions uh, questions that have been raised and yeah. and i think a, a more thorough uh, independent look at things is is warranted i mean casey madju 
justice minister at the time who called the chief of police about a, a traffic ticket he received, an independent inquiry involving involving a retired retired court of Queen's Bench at the time it was Queen's Bench judge uh, did an investigation that took months. Um, this, I think, deals with charges that are extremely serious. I mean, the, just to remind your listeners, uh, amongst the charges being laid are, are uh, charges against four people <clears throat> who uh, are, are charged with conspiring to murder RCMP officers, weapons offenses, um, mischief charges. Of course, that can cover a range of things. So serious charges that are involved here and, and, and serious questions about, about whether there may have been political interference. Yeah, we have a quick clip of Daniel Smith back on January the 12th here talking sort of, this isn't about the same subject, but it is about COVID and it is mm-hmm. about interference. Uh, we'll have a listen. The, the way our, our system of, uh, of justice works is that we do have an independent justice department and independent crown prosecutors. And I have asked them to consider all charges under the lens of, is it in the public interest to pursue? And is there a reasonable likelihood of conviction? Now, uh, two things with that. One, I, I would assume that's what they view every case through, through exactly. the lens they view every case through. Absolutely. But the way she talked about it led people to sort of think, well, wait a second, are you calling? Which, of course, she's not supposed to be doing. Right. So, and it wasn't the only time it happened. There was at least one media, inter- uh, one other media interview where, where she said, and I'll quote from that one, I put it to prosecutors and I've asked them to do a review of the cases with the, these two things in mind. And hopeful to see it turning the page um, and whether and ask ask whether you sh- should prosecute continue on in prosecuting one when the public has moved on. Um, right. She uh, talked in this in the interview that you just clipped from that uh, that she has regular uh, contact, and you know she said later that the language was imprecise. That of course she knows that you can't um, uh, as a government official uh, call the prosecutor's office on on matters like this. Uh, and later said, you know, you can't pardon people like in the U.S., but she's been making statements publicly for some time about musing about the possibility of pardons or charges being dropped. And, and so whether this particular telephone call or sorry, a set of emails uh, was sent w- with her explicit knowledge or not is not so much the question as the fact that she's given a very clear indication of how she thinks these sorts of cases ought to be handled. And they all do involve, pro- I mean, the Kootzberg protest was uh, was about COVID restrictions. And right. and so um, I think there are very serious questions to be raised here um, about, about whether there is that independence, whether she's weighed in on things that she ought not to have done. And, and now questions uh, we're seeing in social media, for example, questions about the people that are involved in the prosecutions of these four sets of, of cases uh, out of coots, whether the prosecutors that were involved because of the perception that something has gone wrong, that those prosecutors ought to be replaced. Laurie Williams, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much, as always. Well, thank you very much. Of course, last week, the Center, Canadian Center for Substance Use and Addiction released their new Health Canada-funded guidance on alcohol and health. It's created... A lot of chatter. I mean, we were talking about it all weekend, the two drink thing, like the no more than two drinks or you're increasing your risk of heart disease, stroke, cancer, and other conditions. Um, you know, even the researchers were, were wondering how they were going to explain this to Canadians. Here's one of them. We were also very shocked about how, um, how much different uh, 
and how far we've come in the science um, since 2011. And, um, you know, frankly, we're like, wow, like how, you know, how are we going to get people <laughs> to drink two drinks a week? Kara Thompson there. How indeed. Well, one of the ways that has been, one of the things that has been growing in popularity of late is non-alcoholic drink options, like, you know, uh, mock drinks, so does mocktails, so to speak, or I, I think there's another word for them now, but de-alcoholized beer, de-alcoholized wine, all kinds of options that you can sort of enjoy the experience of what we used to consider to be an alcohol-fueled, you know, night out without the alcohol. Um, there's a market firm called Nelson IQ in the U.S. that says that non-alcoholic beverages are seeing double-digit sales growth, with sales up more than 20% in 2022 over 2021. And the market um, statista here in Canada is predicting an 8.4% increase in the volume of non-alcoholic beer sold in Canada next year alone. 8.4% increase. So clearly a lot of people are looking for non-alcoholic options. And we're seeing it specifically in retail, but you know, I imagine we'll see it more and more in sort of bar settings and restaurant settings and so forth. You don't need to explain that to my next guest. She and her brother co-founded non-alcoholic beverage company Groovy in 2019 after she noticed a real gap in the market while studying cognitive science at McGill University in Montreal. And of course, enjoying the freedom of being a university student, which involves a certain amount of going out to bars, right? Uh, her story, by the way, is featured in the February edition of McLean's Magazine on newsstands now with a cover story on the dark world of Canadian gymnastics. The success for Groovy wasn't sudden, but it's been substantial with now 18 full-time employees, spots on shelves in some 3,500 stores across the continent, and earning Toronto's Annika Sani a spot on the Forbes Top 30 Under 30 list for food and beverage. And with the entire story of how it went from concept to reality, Annika Sani joins me now. Thank you for your time. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and chat with you today. Yeah, it's such an interesting story because all great ideas have an origin, right? I mean, um, again, I was saying last night, and I'll say it again tonight, we use the term origin story way too much. But where did the idea for alcohol-free uh, booze or alcohol-free drinks, really, being something that you thought would be a success. Where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, I think the inspiration for Groovy really came from something that everyone hasn't experienced at some point, which is those situations where maybe you don't feel like drinking, don't want to drink, but you know, there's life and you have dinner plans or you're going out for drinks with friends and often you feel pressured to drink. And what I realized in my own story is more often than not, I would still reach for the alcoholic beverage really because I didn't feel like I had another option. And so started to kind of explore what was out there. And I often found it was soda and lime was the response. Yeah, not much or or, or sort of de-alcoholized beer, which was, you know, so-so. Uh, this happened while you were at McGill, right? I mean, my alma mater as well. Um, but this was this sort of happened in your university days where we do find those pressures to sort of drink or not drink. We're making those decisions often for the first time as adults, right? Yeah, exactly. And it was, you know, really in my last year of university that I started to question that relationship a little bit more and just kind of ask myself, like, well, do I want to be drinking? You know, do I want to have a hangover tomorrow morning when I have a test in the morning as well? And just being a little bit more mindful of that relationship with alcohol. And yet at the time too, the social pressure to be out and about is pretty intense, right? I mean, that's, that's part of the, that's certainly the time of your life where you feel that pressure. Uh, maybe if you, you contend with that pressure for the first time in a way that you probably don't later in life. 
Exactly. I think that especially that word FOMO comes up a lot, right? right. You have the fear of missing out and especially in university and you want to be able to participate and say yes to everything. Um, and I kind of felt conflicted between those two decisions, one choosing my health and two choosing, you know, my social life. So you graduate, you head back to Toronto and you pitch this idea to someone very close to you. Yeah. So uh, my brother, Nikki, he had actually, he was um, working at Salesforce. He had just taken a year off and was also figuring out what he wanted to do next. Um, and kind of individually, we were, you know, exploring our relationships with alcohol. And so we kind of came together and had this idea that there's an opportunity to create something really different, something that doesn't exist, but, you know, is vibrant and exciting in terms of a brand and have a non-alcoholic option, beer and wine, that people would be excited to reach for and kind of proud, really, to consume and share with friends. So how do you get an idea like that from the dining table or the kitchen table, so to speak? How do you get that kind of an idea off the ground? What did you end up doing? Yeah, um, it all happened pretty quickly, to be honest. We didn't loaf on the decision, really. We were like, okay, let's do it. And we obviously came from different backgrounds, my brother, business, and myself, actually, neuroscience. And so we didn't have a background in beverage, per se. So we really started doing our research and discovering you know, how products, beers, and wines are produced and finding ourselves partners that we really felt aligned with to bring our vision to life. And from there, so it started off, right? You sort of get your first, um, how do you develop your, where do you decide to begin? Because there are such a big, there's so many possibilities when it comes to alcohol-free drinks, so to speak. Uh, where did you decide that there was a real need and where did you, where did you sort of hang your first hook? Yeah. So we knew right off the bat that we wanted to have variety. One, both just in our personal preferences, myself being a little bit more of a wine lover and my brother into craft beer. But two, that was one of the things that we noticed is we were bored with the options. And so we wanted to create a brand that had a widespread of variety and flavors. Um, so our first kind of products that we launched was actually the first NA IPA. And then we had a sour beer and a Prosecco on the wine side. And since then have actually expanded to now have nine different beers and wines on our lineup. Where did you come up with the name? I think a lot of people look at Groovy with the umlaut and say, well, it's, a, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's meant to evoke something. What did you want it to evoke? Yeah. So the name Groovy is really, you know, there's feeling that comes with that, right? You know, have fun, let loose, kind of what you think when you think back to the word um, in the 70s. And we wanted to give it a new fresh life, bring an old term back to life, which is kind of what we felt we were doing with the category. Non-alcoholic beer has been around for a long time, but it's kind of always been underloved and was very stagnant for a long time. Part of the concept there is you can have fun and you can let loose and be silly and you don't need alcohol to do that. Obviously, this stuff doesn't sell itself. You 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 put in the uh, you put in the miles, so to speak, to try to get this off the ground, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, really started at ground zero, so a lot of kind of in person doing all the farmers markets and the samplings and just talking to as many people as we can. We really started by knocking on doors and being like, you know want to try our non-alcoholic beers and wines and really door to door. Yep. Yep. Wow. <laughs> we would How come back that? at the end of the day and be like, who sold how much? Um, <laughs> uh, one case for me. Yeah. That's tough. That's tough. I mean, you learn so much about your product though. 
Yeah. And so, you know, it's crazy to see how the response has really changed over the past three years, right? Three years ago, more often than not, the response was pretty negative and people would be like, you know, well, what's the point of that? And now today, a lot of it comes inbound. People being like, I need to have your product. I want to have a non-alcoholic option at my bar, restaurant or retailer. So it's been really cool to just kind of see that shift in society of people being more aware of the category and a lot more open to it as well. Anna Kasani is with us. She's co-founder of Groovy, the non-alcoholic beverage purveyor, uh, one of the faster growing ones and doing very well. Originated in, in the Toronto area and now, now you're in Denver as well, right? Tell me a bit about how that how that happened, what that connection was. Yeah. After kind of coming up with our concept, having our prototypes in hand, we actually, myself and my brother, decided to move out to Denver. So we pretty much packed up the car and drove across the country wow. um, to you know, kind of use Denver a bit of as our pilot. Um, One, in terms of kind of finding great partners there and producing our products, but two, really finding this niche of a group where Denver is kind of unique. You have a big craft beer mecca, but you also really have this outdoor health-focused lifestyle enthusiast. And so it kind of married this consumer for us to target and get the product out into people's hands. So what are you making now? Because I gather the you've gone from having just a few things to having, a, you had said earlier, nine products. You're in, I think, something like 3,500 North American stores, which is a huge amount of stores if you think about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, we've really constantly been innovating since day one of launching and always kind of, you know, discovering new products. And interestingly enough, we've really tried to incorporate the community into this development. So we have kind of surveys and QR codes on our cans that allow people to give us their direct feedback and also are constantly sending out, you know, questions to understand what products people really want to have in their hands. And so with that, you know, we've actually launched the first Mocha Nitro Stout in the market to a sparkling sangria, which actually just hit the shelves as well. And again, creating that variety, you know, just like alcoholic beverages, people want to have different options for different occasions. And so we're really trying to provide that with the beverages we have. And it's interesting that that you've diversified that you have so many what such a wide range of products. I guess it really it's the it's the brand that you hope people recognize and they come to trust the products regardless of whether it's prosecco or stout. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's been cool actually this past year we have gotten awards on both sides for beer and wine. We got um a gold medal for best NA beer in the world for our golden lager and then also two awards on the wine side. It's really cool to build a company that's kind of cross-sector there. The competition must be getting pretty fierce, though, because I gather a lot of people are looking at this now and saying, "That's there's growth there, and uh, we can get into it, especially companies that make alcohol, because they know all about the things that you learned, which is you know all about the marketing, all about the product itself, making the products. Yeah, definitely. I think every day you start to see new entrants into the category. And like you said, um, obviously, all the big players have invested a lot of money and resources. We see, you know, Heineken and the Budweiser's putting big money behind their ads for their non-alcoholic. There's actually, I think, is it Corona? I passed their ad on my daily walk yesterday morning. But it's great because it's growing the category as a whole and getting that awareness out there that non-alcoholic can be exciting. Non-alcoholic is cool. Um, And it doesn't need to be something that people feel ashamed of. Like you had said earlier, back in the day, it felt like that was only for people that didn't drink. And really, it's for everyone. 
Yeah, and, and you were named to the Forbes 30 Under 30, right? And it's uh, food and beverage category. That's a pretty big honor. That's, I mean, imagine you started off with a notion in your last year of university, sat down with your brother, hammered it out. Next thing you're on the Forbes 30 Under 30 <laughs> list. It's pretty great. Yeah, yeah, it's been pretty surreal uh, from someone that thought she was going to be going to med school for quite a while. It's been a big pivot, but it's been awesome to get some amazing recognition around it. Any advice to others? Because, you know, I think everyone thinks they have a good idea, but it's hard to make it happen. It's certainly hard to get the timing right. Uh, Do you have any advice for other um, aspiring entrepreneurs out there about what you need to do to make things work? Yeah, I think it's really easy to get caught up in overthinking. As of someone of a perfectionist myself, it's easy to kind of hold ourselves back and things don't have to be perfect. So much of it comes from learning actually out there in the field. And like I said, knocking door to door, understanding what people wanted, understanding what consumers actually cared about in their products. And you're always able to kind of iterate and make those changes. So I think my advice would be, you know, don't hold yourself back and kind of make that step forward. Yeah, I guess in the sense of the timing, if you had waited here, I mean, time may have passed you, right? Because a lot of people started looking at this at this space and thinking, that's a good one. And you were already there. Exactly. Having, you know, one of that first movers advantage is is critical in a new space. And so brands that are getting into the space today, it's exciting to see the innovation, but you are quite behind already. Um, and like I said, three years ago, there there was very little option. So it, it was crucial. And that's why we didn't loaf too long on, you know, going back and forth. It was like, we have this idea. Let's let's go for it. The timing is right. And we did. So what now? I mean, you've had, uh, you keep growing. Is that, is that the plan just to keep growing the business? I mean, I imagine, I imagine there must be offers out there. I mean, what would you like to do in the next few years? Yeah, I think especially this year is going to be critical. We saw that this dry January has been one of the biggest dry January so far and really excited to just get the product more into people's hands, get that expansion across the country in Canada. People want to be able to buy their non-alcoholic products on the shelves. And so we're grateful for, you know, partners like Sobeys and London Drugs, but there's a lot of room for growth there. And like I said, to getting to a point of normalization is having bars and restaurants have menus dedicated to their NA. Um, So yeah, I'm excited for what's to come in the next few years. Attica Asani, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. You can read the profile of Annika and Groovy in the February edition of McLean's on Newsstands. Now look for the cover story called The Dark World of Canadian Gymnastics. You can always visit mcleans.ca for updates. Maybe it's a little early to talk about Valentine's Day, but we're not talking about sort of, you know, hearts and flowers Valentine's Day. We're talking about something else. The songs may give you an idea where we're headed with this tonight. Um... The holiday does not elicit warm and fuzzy feelings of love for some in your past, no doubt. Um, Instead, some people spend the day thinking about their ex, right? So there is always the perfect gift for every person in your life, right? And uh, zoos right across North America have, have latched onto this. And one of them is in San Antonio. I'll explain why we went to San Antonio in a minute, because there was a one closer to us that, um, for reasons that I'll explain, we couldn't talk to you about this tonight. So the zoo in San Antonio, amongst others, is helping people mark Valentine's Day by allowing you to name uh, several one of several things after their exes. They include vegetables, roaches, or rodents. Roaches is the most popular one, needless to say. So you can name a roach after your ex or someone else on that kind of a list 
for Valentine's Day and the zoo will send them a card letting them know that they've had a roach named after them. It's all, I mean, it's all tongue in cheek, but you can see where there's a bit of a, there's a bit of an edge to it, isn't there? Um, it's their annual Valentine's Day tra- tradition, of course, and it helps them raise money for a donation of 5 to $25. Uh, as I mentioned, you could name a roach after your ex-partner and they'll send a digital Valentine's Day card to said partner, uh, letting them know. Now, again, I mentioned we had hoped to feature someone closer to home because the Toronto Zoo's Wildlife Conservancy uh, only a few weeks back launched a similar initiative, but it was so successful, it was so successful, they had to shut it down due to high demand because they couldn't get all the requests done. They raised more than $15,000, so congratulations to them, but they didn't want to talk about it because they didn't want any more requests. It seems a lot of people here were very happy to drop a few bucks for a good cause to have a roach named after someone they don't love, or at least not not overtly. Uh, the Toronto Zoo Wildlife Conservancy, though, uh, is also letting you spend money towards adopting a penguin. Now, you don't, don't, you, know, you don't do it all by yourself, but you can add to that, and that will be given to someone. That sounds like a much more a gift for someone you really like, right? So you can do that, too. There are still other ways. There are nicer ways to raise money. Um, they mentioned, I mean, oddly enough, the Toronto Zoo was mentioning that their popular names this year are, are they've had multiple Kyles and multiple Jeffs. Apparently there are more uh, male names. There are more, more male names that are given, traditional male names that are given to these rodents and critters. <laughs> I wonder why. We'll find out why in just a second. Again, it's all for a good cause. There's even a um, zoo in Australia that allows you to name a snake after an X for just a buck. Where does it end, right? Where does it end? But it is a pretty, it is a pretty interesting tale. So it's part part tongue in cheek and part pure vinegar. Um, let's go back to Texas and the San Antonio Zoo. Where joining me now is Kyle Perez. Uh, he is PR director for with the San Antonio Zoo. It's Kyle with a C, by the way. That's important here. And thanks for your time tonight. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. We have a really fun campaign to talk about, and I'm excited to get to your audience and get to talk about it. It is a fun campaign. It's hard not to notice it. It's a very popular one, too. I know a lot of other zoos followed suit. Tell me a bit about about how it came to be. Sure. So the Crimea Cockroach Campaign, as a 501c3 nonprofit, we're always looking for creative and dynamic ways to raise funds. So a ticket to the zoo, that actually is a donation to the zoo and goes to our vision of securing a future for wildlife. But sometimes when you want to go a little bit bigger, a little bit broader, you got to get creative. And the Crimea Cockroach Campaign is a perfect representation of that. It takes us out of San Antonio and actually all across the U.S. and the globe of where we can accept donations from. So it was it came out of necessity, a little bit of creativity. And last year alone, we had over 7,000 donors, all 50 states and over 30 countries. So there are people literally around the world who would like to name a cockroach after someone, well, someone in their someone in their heart, so to speak. I don't know exactly who those people may be, but they, they're interested in what you have to offer. It's a little petty. It's a little bit of getting over an ex or maybe even a boss. We've seen some political figures. We've seen 2022 trends like AI profile pictures. It really is a comical time when you're scrolling on the back end, seeing what people are really contributing this to. And it's it's just a fun, quirky way that they can share on social media, share with their friends, and also do it for a good cause, too. So every donation goes to San Antonio Zoo in that vision. 
Tell me a bit about what exactly, so how it works. How does it work in practice when someone sees your, an article and says, oh, that sounds like I have someone I would name a roach after. I know exactly the person who I'll name a roach after. What happens once they sort of figure out how to do that through you? How does it work? Sure. So that little bit of revenge goes uh, at essayzoo.org is where they start. And there you can pick from a veggie, a roach, or a rodent. And those are three different price points. And they're fed to three different kinds of animals. So the veggie goes to our vegetarian, of course, a veggie option. The cockroach can either go to like a tawny frog mouth, or um, it can even go to like a possum. And the rodent goes to our Komodo dragon, but there's also snakes that eat rodents as well. So you receive a Valentine's card giving you proof that you have made that donation, that you named a cockroach after your ex or whomever it may be. And then you can post. We also send a video of that cockroach being fed to an animal that you can download and share on social media as well. You can actually send your ex a Valentine's card, letting them know that you did, in fact, name them after a cockroach and feed it to an animal. Just to be clear, these these uh, critters, so to speak, would be would be fed anyway, right? That's correct. So these are all feeder insects and already part of the animal's natural diet. So we just kind of did a fun play on it. And so now that's a Sarah as opposed to just breakfast. Exactly. Uh, Do you get, I mean, what kind of reactions do you get? Because I can imagine this might be seen by the recipients of said, said card or said video as being a little, a little, a little petty. It, a petty is definitely a word that we do hear quite often, but um, at San Antonio Zoo, since it's already part of the animal diets, we're just giving you this conduit to truly uh, either get over them or have a little humor and fun with it. Some people who might not engage with zoos already uh, don't really know the back end or don't really go to zoos, but here we're finding a way to meet them where they're at. And that's with different audiences. Um, a funny thing that we're also doing for the people who are maybe looking to find their next ex is a singles night at San Antonio Zoo called Meet Your Next Ex. So this is a really fun time. We have a really fun marketing team that just has a blast during this season. Uh, do, you, do you have, um, I mean, I suppose if you wanted to donate in a more positive way to someone who had a special place in your heart, you could probably find another way of donating to something um, more uh, sweet, so to speak. Sure. So if you're physically here in San Antonio, we have like wild at heart dining, a five course meal that you can treat your sweetheart to, or you could just make a general donation to San Antonio Zoo. Uh, And we have some things that we send people for that as well. So it doesn't have to necessarily be a cockroach in the way that you engage with us, but it certainly is a fun and memorable way to uh, give your two cents. Tell me a bit about some of the requests. I know you can't say too, too much, but tell me a bit about some of the requests you get for the different things you have on offer, like vegetables and roaches and rodents. Sure. So this year we're actually doing a upgrade option and for it's only for 20 of the donors. So for $150, you can upgrade to where we will actually voice over a message that you submit during the video. Uh, And so we'll do a voiceover for that. Last year, we saw some voiceovers talking about how maybe there was some infidelity that happened. And uh, those were really interesting things to hear in the office being recorded over some video. But, you know, it's just part of life. You're just learning different people's backgrounds and what's going on. And of course, all in the great name of a future for wildlife and securing that and conservation. Yeah, it's some bad blood for a good cause, right? A little petty, a little great. (laughs) 
That it's so is the are the majority of them. I mean, what's the tone like? Are they are are a lot of them mocking, or are they more? Do you get some more um, sort of acidic ones coming in? Ones that are pretty 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 angry. It's uh well really if you're just doing the generic cockroach you just submit one name so it, there you don't really get the message um, that's too harmful or hateful you just get a name and that name can range from just generic names last year our most popular names were Jacob and Sarah Jacob so and Sarah they, really okay so it's Jacob so it's an equal oppor- it's equal opportunity I guess equal opportunity those were the ones who took the cake or the cockroach last year. Uh, This year, we have Stephen and Sean as a lead. We definitely have more female donors than male donors. I will say that. So Stephen and Sean are the big ones this year. (laughs) They are in the current lead, yes. I think at Toronto Toronto Zoo, I believe it was Kyle's and Jeff's. Those were the the leading ones. So I guess it depends where you are, right? Or maybe what age group, too, because those names change. Um, Tell me, have you seen a different crowd sort of doing the vegetable stuff? Because that could be a somewhat less, uh, that could be a bit more um, tender, so to speak. Yeah, it's definitely not the most popular. The most popular would be cockroaches followed by rodents and then vegetables. I think it generally draws um, because the headline of every news organization that covers us does reference the X. It does not have to by any means only be an X that you name. It could be fun, a frenemy, just a best friend that you're joking with. And so we do see the much more lighthearted ones in the vegetable option because it doesn't feel as, I suppose, intense or malicious. Um, but also some are ve- some people are vegetarians and like that as an option. We've had some influencers particularly cover the vegetarian option, saying that they fully support vegetarian and vegan uh, animals. We should remember, too, that all these, um, well, the rodents and the roaches, at least, uh, vegetables, obviously, too, but rodents and roaches do have an important part of the ecosystem, but they're, they're obviously an important part of the diet for the animals that you have there, right? So not, not, not to cast aspersions on the roach. No, they are truly the unsung heroes of the food chain. They actually supply a lot of nutrition to different animals that you might not otherwise see. The roaches and rodents that we see, we fear. uh, Maybe they fly. It's not so fun when you're just walking around being a human. But when it comes to animals, it's a perfect nutritious diet for them. And it's something that they look forward to and really enjoy interacting with. So it's fun to see on camera, too. And I guess it's there is a necessity here too. I mean, zoos we know, um, especially after the pandemic and so on, with with the challenges that brought, that there is always the need for to keep the financing up and to keep it open. Absolutely, and this really expanded us past San Antonio, uh, where in San Antonio we had to close our our gates for a while because of the COVID, the quarantine. Uh, there we got creative and we said, "Hey, we drive vehicles through the zoo all the time. Like, how about we do a drive through zoo?" Right, and that got really popular as well. And others who started to replicate that. And so it really comes down to a need and a necessity and how creative you can be with what the resources you already have. And that's really what brought Crimea Cockroach around and what brought Drive Through Zoo around, but all in the name of conservation and uh, keeping these animals plentiful on our earth as well as wildlife and wild places. And, and Kyle, I guess you don't, you don't, you don't participate, do you? <laughs> you would it would be so easy for them to figure out where you had gotten the idea for wouldn't it i i have not purchased a roach no or a rodent but if i do see a kyle with a c on the list i'm going to blame this show probably yeah, indeed. So, i was saying i'm hoping ben is not a particularly popular name this year in san antonio <laughs> or anywhere else but we'll soon find out we'll uh, find out I'll, let you, I'll keep you updated that's for sure all right kyle perez thank you so much
Thank you. Thank you for having us. When I say millennial, and there hasn't been a millennial prime minister yet, when I say millennial, what are the first words that come to mind? Are they positive? Negative? What are the precise terms? Now, the millennial generation is, is it's, it shifts a little bit, but loosely defined as covering people born in sort of like the mid 80s, 83, 84, 85, maybe a little higher to the 90s, maybe 96, you know, 81 to 96, 82 to 95. It depends, but sort of in that area. They grew up with the internet. How's that? You know, uh, Gen X, my, we didn't. We didn't grow up with it. We had it when we got a bit older, but we didn't have it when we were growing up. Well, the Senate of Canada, there couldn't be a more old, sort of more traditional institution in the country, has set up a webinar to help staff members better understand millennials in the workplace. It's meant to challenge the perceptions amongst older workers that the generation are, you know, a bit praise-seeking, distracted, and so on. This video probably sums it up the best. You said eight, right? Yes. Eight, like... In the morning, eight? Yes, in the morning. Yeah. That kind of doesn't work for me. Who gets up at eight? I do. I Skype with my French boyfriend in Paris until like three in the morning. I don't even get to Starbucks until like 10 where I order my grande chai tea latte, three pumps, skim milk, light water, 2% foam, extra hot, but not too hot. So if it's okay, I work best in the morning at 1045. <laughs> So, I mean, that's a, a ridiculous stereotype, of course, but often that's what people think. When you say millennial, that's sort of like, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, them. So uh, the Senate set this up to try to uh, teach people. Re really, it's about working together, you know, as people go back to the office to try to create a better work atmosphere as everyone's getting back into office life together. Uh, but my next guest says, wait a second, you're, they're basically, you know, furthering the myth. Joel Tiesen is Chair of Social Sciences and Professor of Sociology at Ambrose University in Calgary. He's also co-author of The Millennial Mosaic, How Pluralism, Plural, How Pluralism and Choice Are Shaping Canadian Youth and the Future of Canada. Joel, thanks for your time. Thanks, Ben. Good to be with you. So, uh, you know, I, I, of course, if you look for, you know, millennial job interview, that's the first one that pops up. That video has been seen countless, countless times. But it kind of encapsulates what a lot of people above that generation uh, think and it seemed I'm wondering where it came from yeah I had to both chuckle and cringe as I listen to that uh, there because it does reinforce these stereotypes and you say okay where does it come from well it comes from parents and teachers and coaches and media and social media it just takes on a life of its own and it uh, becomes self-perpetuating and, and even in the movies we watch, the programs we watch, uh, we present certain images of different social groups in society and we, we latch onto those and then we perpetuate those in a variety of, of social contexts. Of course, it, your whole project in some senses was to bust that myth and you did, right? I mean, clearly the such a large generation within our society is a complex generation and growing up with, you know, why plugged in and part of, part of the, you know, World Wide Web to use an old, old term. I mean, it made them a complex generation. Yeah, and it's not necessarily that we set out to kind of debunk the myth, but we wanted to see, okay, how do millennials view the world? How are they similar or dissimilar from older generations? And I think one of the central takeaways in our research was that they're far more similar than dissimilar to their parents or even their grandparents on a lot of social issues and a lot of their hopes and dreams and fears in life. And uh, you rarely hear that narrative, but when you actually go and talk to millennials and you talk to their parents and you talk to their grandparents and you track these things over time, you find 
out that there's a lot more in common than uh, is not in common. But uh, we don't hear a lot of that in a lot of our different, again, media and news, uh, movies and music and so forth. Well, depending how you classify millennial, I mean, some of them are turning 40 this year. They can hardly be seen as sort of a a new generation, right? They're they're well into their work lives. Um, Where where do you think the, the, if we talk about the similarities, then wherein are the differences that, that sort of lead to this caricature? Of, of the generation that we're just, I was just reinforcing, by the way. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's an excellent question. And I think, I mean, one of the biggest differences, especially when it comes to the workforce, is that uh, younger people do value that work-life balance. And in some ways, we heard a bit of that in the previous segment when we look at uh, uh, Prime Minister in New Zealand, that there, there is this sense among young people in Canada that they work to live rather than live to work. And that's a fundamentally different posture to the way of being in society and in our employment sectors, et cetera. And I think uh, for some, that's a hard shift to understand uh, and even for young people to articulate. And so in that respect, you know, younger people are, are willing to even take less money in some jobs if it means that uh, they can clock out at four o'clock or clock in at 1045 a.m. or whatever those, those uh, variations are. So I think that's one of the biggest differences in the employment sector. Uh, there are many similarities too, but certainly that stands out as, as one of the variations. And I imagine that a lot of people from different generations, Gen X specifically, I mean, the only time they would really spend a lot of time with millennials would be either in family environments or or at work, right? I mean, it, it's an interesting, I, I, I've never, I mean, I'm a Gen X member. You're just sort of on the cusp, right? You're right down, was it 81 yeah. you're born? Yeah, so Correct, you're, yes, yeah. You're, you're, right, you're right on the edge, right on the edge. Um, but yeah, a lot of the stereotypes about millennials I've never really found to be true in practice, to be honest. I always thought they were incredibly diligent, uh, you know, certainly more assertive than some of their, than our generation was at work specifically. Yeah, I mean, some of the ways in which we foster our perceptions of other groups sometimes comes in a vacuum because we aren't actually rubbing shoulders with members of those groups. And uh, spending time with different age groups is a classic example. Outside of the workplace setting, there's very few social spaces in our daily lives where we are rubbing shoulders with members across different generational groups. And so I think that gap partially explains uh, the perceptions that we have of others and we fuel those. But again, when you come back to the data and and we look at this in our book, The Millennial Mosaic, you'll find that uh, young people today, say 18 to 29 year olds, say that working hard is a very important value. And they actually score higher on that than any generation above them. Or you compare young people today to young people, say 20 or 30 years ago, And young people today say that working hard is a very important value to them, more so than younger people of earlier generations. So uh, in many respects, there's a a deeper value for working hard. And you can't fault them, really. You look at the obstacles that young people are up against today in terms of the pressure for higher education, the the debt they go into to pursue education. Uh, They can't necessarily find jobs that are related to their training and affordable housing. So it's not that millennials are set apart in the hardships that they confront as young adults, but uh, there certainly are a number of barriers and obstacles, uh, let alone these uh, stereotypes and perceptions that uh, they almost have to work even harder to counter those things and, and prove their worth, so to speak, either in employment settings or just society in general. Joel, what did you make of this Senate course on, I mean, it sounds also bureaucratic, but what did you make of this Senate webinar on how to work with millennials? 
Yeah, I mean, the very first question that came to my mind is why aren't there courses on working with Gen Xers or, or baby boomers? And I mean, those questions are about as preposterous as having a course on working with millennials. So it's not surprising to me as a sociologist, you see and hear these perceptions and stereotypes, but uh, nonetheless, it's a little disconcerting of uh, it happening at sort of the highest levels of, of government within our country. Yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering what, uh, in looking at what they were trying to foster, there was sort of this, if you read between the lines, there's this sort of idea that older employees don't know how to make way for this new generation that are moving up, right? I mean, these are now people who are have probably been in the workforce, I mean, they've been in the workforce for 15, 10, 15, 20 years now. Um, yeah. You know, how do you, how do you manage them within a government situation? Do you think it's, I mean, it doesn't seem so, it seems somewhat noble to try to, you know, teach people that stuff but what would you teach yeah i mean it's a great observation and and i suppose it is a question okay are they trying to better understand young people to really pave a way and, and maybe even develop and train leaders in the next generation or is it more of the narrative of need to better understand young people so that we can convince young people to view the world as we do and how they quote unquote ought to the way the way the work work world is really supposed to work and so i think my initial hunch is that it seems more of the latter kind of interpretation than necessarily making a way but um, it's hard to say for definite without actually sitting down with folks who are designing this course and trying to implement it and, and how it's communicated i'm surprised they didn't call you joel i mean you wrote the book right <laughs> or co-wrote the book i should say <laughs> Yes, indeed. We uh, we need more data to inform some of our thoughts and practices here. But I mean, if you're out there and you're thinking, oh, I know exactly what they're talking about, you know, those those millennials, millennials always looking for praise and so on. What, do, what would you tell them with all the work that you've done and being sort of on the cusp of that generation yourself? What is it that, yeah. that other generations should remember or know about, uh, about, about millennials in general? I know that's a very broad question. But still. Yeah. yeah, I would say two things. I would say first that Millennials are a fairly uh, diverse group internally, as are all generations, like not all Gen Xers are the same or baby boomers. There's a lot of diversity and experiences. And so uh, it's more of a caution that we don't take our, our large stereotypes of a certain social group in society and kind of one big paintbrush, say everyone's the same. And the other thing I would say is, if it's true that millennials are an all borrow some stereotypes here, if they're, you know, lazy, entitled, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one would ask the question, okay, where may they have picked up some of those qualities or traits or characteristics? And I think sociology would help us understand that, well, they, they learn these things from their parents and from their teachers and from their coaches. And you think about, okay, well, who's handing out participation badges, for example? It's it's not the, the young people's fault, per se, if we're going to lay blame. It's, uh, this is how they're being socialized from other adult influences within their life. And so uh, it probably helps us to take a sober look in the mirror and say, how do our social environments shape our perceptions and experiences of the world? And as much as I say that, I'm not suggesting that these stereotypes are true of young people, but if for a moment we pause and assume they're true, then we would ask, okay, what are the social contexts that possibly give rise to some of those narratives and approaches to the workplace or other aspects of young people's lives? Yeah, they are just a mirror of all of us, aren't they? I mean, indeed, indeed, what... for better or worse. For better or worse. I mean, I remember even as a kid growing up with parents who had had their, you know, boomers who had had some kids young, so Gen Xers, who were sort of latchkey kids on the bus by themselves, able to roam wherever they wanted, and then are their younger siblings who were 
millennials were treated very differently. They were much, they weren't allowed to do much at all. There was always someone hovering over them. So I could see why they were stressed out at a younger age compared to some, some of the kids a little older than they were. Yeah, and there's a lot of data that talks about this, of the, uh, the downsides of hyper-parenting, for example, of being overly controlled and even the, the role of technology to track your children and where they're at and what they're up to. And uh, there's almost at times an, an overbearing presence of adult influences in young people's lives today that are different than prior generations. That um, data is pretty clear. It's, is correlated with things like higher anxiety, for example, among uh, younger people and the sense that I'm uh, particularly special in the world in my different social settings and spaces and how uh, when what you want isn't necessarily given to you in different settings, uh, that that can actually have a problematic effect in some ways because of the ways that, that parents have raised young people in some of these settings. Not all parents, it's not all millennials, but it's certainly uh, one of the prevailing trends today and in contrast to parenting of prior generations. Well, Joel, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, I hope this is all put to bed for millennials by the time the last of them hits 40. It's about time we gave them a break, I think. (laughs) That's great. Thanks, Ben. 